This episode is brought to you by Forney Industries, official sponsor of Faction 46 and Nice Motorsports Truck Series teams. Forney offers versatile welding and plasma cutting machines, along with a full line of metalworking accessories for beginners, do-it-yourselfers, and professionals. Forney has everything you need for your next metalworking project. Shop for these top-of-the-line products at ForneyIND.com, that's F-O-R-N-E-Y-I-N-D.com, or at an authorized Forney dealer near you. Hey there, NASCAR fans. Have you got your copy of the latest edition of NASCAR Pole Position Print Magazine? If not, there's no better time than now to subscribe at PolePositionMag.com. NASCAR Pole Position is the only print magazine covering NASCAR. Officially licensed by NASCAR, NASCAR Pole Position Magazine is published throughout the NASCAR season, and each edition is an instant collector's item, backed with great feature stories and photography. The magazine is even mailed to you in a poly bag for those who love to collect NASCAR memorabilia. At PolePositionMag.com, you can even find past issues available to purchase. Get your subscription to NASCAR Pole Position and get great NASCAR content delivered straight to your mailbox throughout the season. Learn more at PolePositionMag.com. That's PolePositionMag.com. Hey y'all, Rick Houston here, and I want to tell you about my new show, the Moonshine and Motorsports Racing Podcast. I've partnered up with the state of North Carolina Department of Natural and Cultural Resources to help uncover the history behind moonshining mountain boys, professional wheelmen, and the backwoods and city lights of the Tar Heel State. In the first episode, I sat down with Winston Kelly at the NASCAR Hall of Fame for a little behind-the-scenes gossip about Junior Johnson's engineering skills. He's got two things in his hand, pipe wrench and channel lock pliers, and they weren't new. They yeah. had been, they had been yeah. around the block a time or two. What's so, the first deal they built, I bet? No, no, you know, you could, I think they were, they had, the, the pliers had been red before, but paint had worn off. And in the second episode, I talked to a professional hillbilly, a.k.a. Dr. Daniel Pierce of UNC Asheville, to find out the real history of moonshiners and their battles with the revenuers. He wrote about one of his experience of trying to chase down this uh, this bootlegger and this this souped-up car, and he, he complained that the government gave him these piece-of-crap, cheapo cars and that, that were really no match, but he thought he was doing pretty good. And then the guy just hits it and just takes off and practically disappeared. But then the guy makes a bootleg turn uh, and comes back towards him. And it, it, as he said, it was a game of chicken and I was a chicken. And so he ran off the road. And actually he was the guy who, who caught Junior Johnson at his daddy's steal when Junior got tangled up in a, in a barbed wire fence. <laughs> So check out the Moonshine and Motorsports Racing Podcast available on YouTube, DailyDownForce.com, and all of your favorite podcasting platforms. And be sure to check out my regular show on NASCAR history, the Scene Bought Podcast. Hello, my name is Rick Houston, and welcome to the Scene Vault Podcast, your source for all things NASCAR history. Presented by QWare. Maintain excellence. Gave it all I could. I didn't leave nothing laying on the table. Took it all with me to the racetrack. Well, the, the fun I had was worth every dime. I don't know if I was the greatest race driver 
in racing, but I know I could outrun anybody come on that racetrack. I can't stand a job half done. The day NASCAR and all of us associated in any way with NASCAR forget its past, that's the day we don't have any future. Hello, I'm Steve Wade. And my name is Rick Houston, and welcome to this special episode of the Scene Vault Podcast presented by QWare. Steve, we did not plan to record again this year, but then came news Friday that we had lost Junior Johnson. 88 years old. And Steve, I got to tell you, it has been a bad week for this sport because on Monday, we also lost Bill Simpson. No 10 safety crews, no 50 safety crews saved as many people no. as Bill Simpson did. It's staggering to think of how many tragedies we might have had without Bill Simpson. And we are going to talk about Bill Simpson in depth in a later episode because I did interview Bill for my book on the 2001 Daytona 500 and kind of the safety controversies that led up to that race and certainly that came out of that race. So we're going to save our conversation about Bill for that point in time because, you know, he did change the face of this sport. But today what I want to do is I want to talk about Junior. Steve, I, I don't even know how to put it into words. What a huge loss. Oh, yes. Junior is. We overuse the word legend. But in stock car racing, Junior Johnson is a legend. He's a very embodiment of the sport. Moonshiner, later team, a racer, later a team owner, uh, everything that he touched in his life, he was successful at. And he was truly a pioneer in NASCAR. You know, he was a legend in the sport, but when you consider all of the deals that he helped put together and all the things that he was connected to over the years, you had him discovering the draft in the right. 1960 Daytona 500. Right. You, <laughs> I don't know what would have happened to this sport if he hadn't put R.J. Reynolds together with, with NASCAR. NASCAR. Yeah. We hear stories all the time that we didn't even know about that True. Junior had his hand in. That's right. That's right. And a lot of the technical development that took place in NASCAR over the years was spearheaded by Junior Johnson. Now, you can call it creative mechanics, <laughs> or you can call yeah, it cheating, yeah. or whatever you want to call it, but uh, a lot of the stuff that is now part of the sport, he was there to find it. He was there to create it. Steve, I wanted to get back together with you because I know that you have some Junior Johnson stories <laughs> because of your association with him yeah. and the book Brave in Life, which I believe went into six printings. Have I said that before? I can't remember. <laughs> I don't know. Every other episode. <laughs> First of all, how did that project come about? How did that get started? Actually, Tom Higgins, my late friend, and I were approached by the publisher, and he said he was told by Junior Johnson himself to find the two of us, that he wanted you two to do the book. Well, I was honored, to be honest with you, and uh, very, very flattered. But Junior told us later that uh, he wanted us to write the book because he knew it, it would be accurate and fair. As he put it, I don't want no criticism in this book about people or things. He says, I just want it to be a fair and accurate book. And that's what we did, and that's how it all came about. But what's fascinating about doing that book, though, Rick, is listening to Junior tell the stories. I was oh, just yeah. I was yeah. just swept away by his moonshining days. 
Now, let me tell you something. <laughs> His father, Robert Glenn Johnson, was a, a, a big-time moonshiner up in the uh, near mountains of North Carolina, around North Wilkesboro, Yadkinville, your home. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, right around there. And he, at one time, he had 1,000 stills in Operating. operation. At one time. At the same time. No kidding. The theory was that the feds came in and broke up one where you can't just stop. You got to keep going. And that's the reason why they had so many stills. Now, as a result of having that many stills, they produced a heck of a lot of moonshine. Now, where did it go? Where did it go? They can only haul away so much. Well, it turns out <laughs> the Johnson home was the storage <laughs> place for moonshine. Yeah. And the law found out about it and raided the house. Now, get this. They found 7,100 gallons of moonshine in that house, stored in crates and cases everywhere throughout the house, even upstairs in the kid's bedroom. 7,100 7, gallons. Largest moonshine raid on land in history. That is incredible. And Junior said that to get all that out of there... They had to take these long wooden slats and lay them down on the steps and then slide the cases down. Well, as they started doing that, Junior and the other kids in the household said, hey, this could be fun. They <laughs> sat on those cases as the moonshiners yeah, pushed yeah, them down the yeah. slats. Wee! Who was the Junior Johnson that you knew? This might be uh, hard to understand, but as brilliant as he was as a mechanic, and successful as he was as a driver and a team owner, when you met Junior and talked with him, it was just like talking to an ordinary guy. Yeah. I mean, you Because that's who he was. He right. was an ordinary guy who just so happened to... I mean, yeah. and, and uh, very, very friendly, very outgoing, uh, and you've been to his breakfast many times. Yes, I have. If yeah. he knew you and you walked in the door and you never told him you were coming, he'd say, come on in anyway. You know, yeah. just walk through the door. That's how the kind of man he was. Well, that kind of leads into the memories that I have of him. I guess the first time that I really had anything to do with him, my wife was up for a judgeship in the state of North Carolina in our district. And this was a created position. This wasn't anything that she was having to run for at the right. time. And Junior, of course, was very big in local politics. There. Right. He's a big Democrat. And... <laughs> So Jeannie called Junior and had him write a letter of recommendation to the governor of the state of North Carolina at that time, Jim Hunt, who was also a Democrat. And <laughs> she sent me to pick up the letter. <laughs> well, I get there and it's after dark and all of Junior's dogs yeah. gathered around my car and would not let me out. <laughs> whoa, whoa. You know, all those coon dogs and everything. <laughs> Well, Junior comes out, and he literally has to call the dogs off. <laughs> so that was my inglorious introduction to Junior Johnson. But you did mention breakfast at Junior's. Right. In 2008, in all the time that Jeannie has been on the bench, she's been on the bench since 1997, in all that time, she has had opposition for her seat one time, and that was in the year 2008. And, Steve, that was such a bad year for mm. us. I had surgery in January. Jeannie's thyroid cancer came back. My dad passed away. And on top of everything 
was this election. Mm. So, you know, I had a lot on my mind that year, and I didn't sleep a whole lot. So <laughs> when I would wake up at, I don't know, four thirty, five o'clock in the morning, I would kind of toss and turn for a few minutes. And if I couldn't go back to sleep, I would just get up and I would go over to Junior's yeah. for breakfast. Unannounced. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And so <laughs> I went in there, and I couldn't tell you how many mornings that year in particular that I watched the sun come up. Hmm. But one morning, we were there for breakfast, and the people who were helping the guy who was running against Jeannie brought him in. Oh, yeah. And they started introducing him around as Judge Green. Ah. And, you know, just kind of being kind of loud about it. Yeah. You know how politicians are. Oh, sure. The big wheeler dealer in local politics, he was there with this guy, and he was introducing him as Judge Green and everything. Well, Junior kind of said, hey, this is Judge Houston's husband, so kind of. <laughs> and I was like, yes, sir. Then after they left, Junior kind of patted me on the shoulder, and he said, you're going to be all right, son. <laughs> and ah, uh, I can't tell you how much of a weight that lifted off you my know, shoulders for that just yeah, a few minutes. Yeah. Well, Junior, as you know, Junior started driving when he was 14, getting into the family business very early. The main interesting thing, I think, about Junior as a moonshine hauler was the fact that he was never caught on the highway. He was caught. <laughs> now, you at, ain't going to catch Junior on no, the highway. No, never caught. He was caught at the family uh, still where his dad had told him to go out in the early morning hours and stoke the fires. So that's what Junior was doing. But they were under observation by the Internal Revenue people. They knew that where that still was, and they were there to pounce, which is what they did. And Junior saw him and took off running. He had a pretty good head start. Now, his theory was that if he get to the fence, there was about a three-foot gate, open gate, at that fence. Now, if he could get through that gate, he'd be out in the wood and gone. He missed it by a foot and ran into the <laughs> ran into the fence, yeah. and it knocked him down in the course, and they pounced on him, and they took him off. And he went to uh, Chuck Coffey, Ohio, jail, prison, whatever you want to call it, for 11 months. And that, uh, then he came back, and he determined by that time that the, he tried to be a little bit more careful, but he wasn't stopping his moonshine enterprises at all. Junior when I went to breakfast there, got to know him. And again, we weren't buddies or anything like that. And I didn't go hang out at his house, you know, all the time. But we did get to know each other a little bit. And after my time in NASCAR ended, he actually wrote a letter of recommendation for a job in NASCAR that I was going after. I didn't get that particular gig, but Junior Johnson thought enough of me and what I could do to write write a letter letter. recommendation. And I'll be honest with you, I wish... I had kept a copy of that. I did not. I just turned it over to the company that I was applying with. Didn't happen. But another time, he actually called the editor at NASCAR.com, Dwayne Cross, and (laughs) I wound up doing a ton of freelance for NASCAR.com, and then that turned into a gig doing freelance work for NCAA.com. Steve, I covered every collegiate sport that the NCAA sanctions. Oh, I didn't. With the exception of maybe tiddlywinks, (laughs) (laughs) water polo, and (laughs) didn't quite get to those, but I did everything else. And I believe that it was due in large part to Junior. 
Colin Dwayne. Well, you know, Junior is a great storyteller. And uh, while I enjoyed listening to him while doing the book and getting all that information out of him, I had the most fun when he'd tell those stories about moonshining. He strengthened the, the long-held notion that NASCAR, or stock car racing rather, sprung from the moonshine race. It did. He said they would go out on the highways and test each other's cars and see who had the fastest car. That was an honor back then, and that's how it all got started. Among the other stories, this, this one is probably my favorite. Junior was out with Gwen Staley of the Staley's who ran North Wilkesboro Speedway. Gwen dabbled in the arts as well, <laughs> if you get my drift. And they were out together, and they were going down the highway in the uh, North Wilkesboro area, and they came across a car that was overturned on the side of the road. And they got out, and they looked. They could smell <laughs> the liquor. And the two guys were still in the car, but they were not hurt. But they were slightly inebriated. <laughs> <laughs> so Junior turned the car over, and him and Gwen drove the two men back to where they were from, which was the Wilkes County Sheriff's Office. <laughs> the guys that they fucked back and found in that overturned yeah. car who were drunk were the Wilkes County Sheriff and a deputy. <laughs> and Junior said he was never bothered in Wilkes County after that. <laughs> well, you know, speaking of NASCAR.com, when I did the freelance stuff for them, Junior was elected to the first class of inductees into the NASCAR Hall of Fame. That's correct. That was certainly a momentous occasion for him. And I was going to do a behind-the-scenes piece where I kind of followed Junior around on the morning of the induction ceremony and then throughout the day. Well, I don't know all the details and everything, but NASCAR would not allow me to follow him. Mm-hmm to some of the pre-induction ceremony events, the jacket presentation and all that. I have my ideas, but <laughs> that ain't the purpose of this podcast. So I, I don't know what happened, but Junior said, don't worry about it, boy. You'll be all right. Just come up to the hotel room. We'll talk there. And so I went up to Junior's hotel and I actually watched a hairstylist do his hair. Oh my goodness. <laughs> I couldn't believe that Junior Johnson, you know, Wilkes County wild man, was having his hair done by an honest-to-goodness hairstylist. (laughs) (laughs) So that was Junior Johnson. And I think what we're going to do in this episode, because I do want people to remember who Junior was. Steve, our fourth episode and our sixth episode, we ran an interview that I had done with him back in probably 2000, well, 2008. Yeah. Is exactly when I did it because I it, that was when I was going over there fairly regularly. But I, I want to run that interview in its entirety. That's a very good idea. You right? know because I he talks he talks about some of the very things that we've talked about, right? And some of the deals that he had and some of the moves that he made in the sport that I don't know if he hadn't made those. I don't know that well, we're have to think. You wonder where the sport would be. The sport was not in serious financial trouble. But it was uh, in some difficulty in the early 70s. And it looked like things were going to have to change for the worse. But that's when Junior met up with R.J. Reynolds. He was going there to get a sponsorship for his own team. And they told him, Junior, we've got all this money to spend in advertising because we've been kicked off of television. 
And Junior said, wait, you got all that kind of money. You know, I think I can make this better for myself and everybody else. You need to talk to Bill France. And that's how it all started. And if Reynolds had not been with us all those years, you have to wonder, would we even have a NASCAR today? And that's a fair thing to ask. So, listeners, I hope you enjoy this interview and take a moment while you're listening to everything that he had to say and remember who he was and what he meant to this sport. We're here with the legend, Junior Johnson. Of course, Junior recently was elected to the first class of inductees into the NASCAR Hall of Fame. And Junior, first of all, congratulations. Thank you. It's an honor to have that put on you and not expecting it and stuff. So I'm just elated by it. Has it sunk in yet? Well, not really, you know that uh, people thank me for what I've done and stuff like that. And, you know, I'm a kind of person that I uh, didn't do it for anything other than the sport, and uh, I didn't expect nothing back. Payback like this is certainly worth what I did. Were you in Charlotte when they made the announcement, or were you back home? I was almost home. Well, you were almost home. And I was listening to it on the radio. Is there any way to put into words what your reaction was? I'm not a real emotion person, but at least my wife was with me and also the man that runs the distillery that we have. And uh, both of them said they was sure there's tears come to my eyes. <laughs> Are you denying or confirming? I'm not real sure. <laughs> <laughs> Junior, has there been a point in the, the past couple of weeks where you've had a chance to reflect and say, I'm just a country boy from Wilkes County, North Carolina, and here I am, a NASCAR Hall of Famer? It's been a, a long, long road, but uh, I, I've really been in some great, great people, companies and stuff. There's presence of being in the Hall of Fame and elected to certain things and stuff that uh, I just appreciate it and I can't just tell you in words what, what it means to me really. Now you said the night before at the Moonshiners Revenuers reunion up in Wilkes County that if you were elected to the NASCAR Hall of Fame that it would be pretty much the highlight of your life. Is that the case? That is the case. I, you know, uh, Everything that's ever happened in NASCAR racing is was uh, behind me winning the Daytona 500, but not anymore. Getting inducted into that Hall of Fame took that away. I know that you've already been asked this question also a thousand times, but how did Holland Moonshine on the roads translate over into what you did on the racetrack? It gave me so much advantage over other people that didn't know had to train and learn how to drive when i sat down in that seat the first race i ever ran it was a back seat to what i'd already been through with i had uh did all them spinning deals and sideways and you know stuff like that and it just made my job so much easier 
than anybody that I had seen come along and go into it. And I, never, ever did I see a guy could take a car any deeper than I could and save it as long as I raced. Now, you ran a couple of races on the old Daytona <clears throat> Beach and Road course. I, I really didn't run but one race. Me and Gwen Staley went down there and kind of in a drove a car one time. But uh, in 1956, I went there for Brushy Mountain Motors over in Taylorville to uh, win that race. And I think I would have won it if I, you know, hadn't, the track hadn't got so rough. It I just kept bluffing the track, making, you know, uh, attempt to go through the ruts and stuff the way I had drove at the early part when it was smooth and I went in too deep and sliding through them ruts it, it dug in and turned over uh, but uh, I was leading the race I, you know I was on my way to win it now uh, do you remember how much you won for that race no I don't $25 well, the the fun I had was worth every dime of it. <laughs> because I was there, I was there against Ford Motor Company, Chevrolet, and Keith Kafer, and I, you know, Keith Kafer had a line of cars that it was hard to outrun them. But if you worked at it, you could beat them. You obviously won the 1960 Daytona 500. In that race, you were credited with discovering the draft. How did did that come about? Well, it was an accident on my part, and uh, it uh, was something that I didn't know what I'd done. I knew I had something that nobody else had, but I didn't know what it was. And Cotton Owens came by, and I was out on the racetrack. Ray Fox was working on the car. He built a car for the track, the dog track there, and... He had two weeks to build a car and have it at the racetrack, and you can imagine how you know how much of a race car it really was. It's almost a street car, but that wasn't the worst part. Of it. it had a what a 409 engine in it, and that was really a truck engine. It wasn't a, a race engine. It was for pulling heavy loads, not running fast. So. I was there at a pretty big disadvantage, but I anyway, when Cotton came by, I ducked in behind him just, you know, I wanted to race with him, and unbeknownst to me, all of a sudden, going down the back stretch, I could run all over him half throttle, and I said, that, you know, I think, and you know, I really thought Ray had got the car fixed. We was, I don't know, 20 mile an hour slow. I went back in, and Ray, he said, well, we, we've got it running now, and all, and and I didn't say anything, because, you know, it did run fast. And I told him, I said, Ray, put me on a brand-new set of tires and let me go back out and see how much faster it'll run my brand-new tires on it. Well, I went out, and I run three laps before. Here come jack smith in one of them pontiacs and he was the fastest pontiac of the whole bunch well i right along about the flag stand i picked him up and about down at the end of the, the back stretch i could have passed him i was all over him going in the turn so i run him through that turn down in the front stretch and back down the back stretch again and i pulled off and went into pits and 
didn't say anything to anybody, nothing about it. I said, it's just, uh, I almost came home. I almost didn't stay down there because the car was so slow. And I said, oh, if I stay and I can do this all day long, you know, I might come out of here with a pretty good finish. So I just kind of shut up about the car <laughs> and went on with my business. And I knew what I was going to do that when that race started. I was going to, uh, you know, go to the front through using the draft of the people that was out there. And it wasn't long I was up there. Uh, the first four or five cars, I, I stayed in it a lot. But when they go to the pits, I just had to wait till one of them come out, you know. Then I could go back again like I was uh, doing, you know, while they was going from one pit stop to another pit stop. Now, was there one car in particular that you followed that day, or was it pretty much just pick and choose? Pick and choose, because the Pontiacs would get away from me every once in a while, and I couldn't ever get to them unless they come around again. I'd have to pick up some of the slower cars, but the slower cars, when you get to them, they'd speed up and you'd speed up. So it was a, a pretty good contest of being able to say that uh, you could uh, draft on a slow car and almost run with a fast car by itself. When did you know you had the race won? When Bobby uh, Johns spun out. I knew I had it won then because... His back glass flew out, and the wind went in the car and sucked it up off the ground in the back, and it turned around and around down through the grass it went. And I knew if uh, the wind was that big a hazard on his back end, he couldn't run anyway. And Jack Smith, what had happened to him to get to me was that Jack had come out and picked him up and drug him around there because... He just burned a front wheel burn out, and they fixed that when the Pontiac people found out what was going on, about 20, 30 laps to go. And Bobby was second to me because I'd been drafting all day, and he's running by himself, so he was, you know, not well ahead of me. I thought, well, if some of them big new Pontiacs don't come back out, I've got the thing win, and... They figured out what I was doing, and they fixed that hub for Jack Smith and sent him out and drug Bobby Johns up through there. And they was in front of me whenever uh, his back glass blew out. Other than that win, what was your most memorable race as a driver? I, I don't know that I had a special It compared with winning the Daytona 500 because of the way I won it. And the disadvantage I had when I went into it, I don't know how what you would call it is yeah. just an absolutely miracle that you know I was able to win that race. But uh, I won some great races, uh, you know, uh, Charlotte and Atlanta and races like that. You won one of them things back in them days. You was a you know you was a horsepower type person, you know. And if I didn't have car trouble or blow a tire, I won a lot of them, and I lost more than I won. NASCAR's 50th anniversary, Sports Illustrated named you the greatest driver in NASCAR history. What was your reaction to that? Well, you know, 
I, they had a lot of great race drivers. Curtis Turner, Buck Baker, and, and different ones like that came along through the sport. But I don't know if I was the greatest race driver in racing, but I know I could outrun anybody that come on that racetrack. That being said, in 1965, you won, I think, 12, 13 races? Yes. And you decided to step out of the car. You decided to retire in 66. In 66, you ran, I think, six or seven races, but pretty much your driving career was over. What was the reasoning behind that? It's kind of hard for me to say, stand here and say, well, racing wasn't my whole life. Racing was not a determinator of me going and race ever race. I, I, you know, I could run and leave it either one. It didn't make yeah. any difference to me because I knew that I was the most trained, you know, physical person to drive one of them cars through my bootlegging days yeah. of anybody out there. And it did, it wasn't exciting to outrun any one of them, but the Daytona 500 was. And, I, you know, I, I really enjoyed winning the other races. But I don't think racing put me in the category with the guys that didn't have the driving style or did not have as much experience as I had to go on the racetrack with. It was just not a thing. Or Am I going to finish second today or uh, whatever? If that car run, I knew I was going to win that race. Most of them I did win. You seem to have a very definite style of running a race team. How would you describe yourself as a team owner? Vicious. I can't stand... A job half done. And when I went to the racetrack and got beat, it was because the car wouldn't finish when it left the shop. And that was not my style. How did you translate that to your employees? A lot of times they got fired. And that, you know, it starts at the top comes down but uh, work is what it takes if you go to the racetrack and you hadn't done your job back at the garage you might as well have stayed home and sometimes we is at a disadvantage with the car or the motor or something of that nature and I, cause it, I could accept that but I didn't accept it very long you know, uh, fixed it, got the problem fixed, and go win races. But when you're switching cars, like I did, I'd be with Oldsmobile today, and tomorrow I'd be with Buick or or Ford or just a different car completely, not knowing what it's going to act like or nothing else. I didn't care because I knew we could fix it. And it was a better deal for me, and, and I had to have the best deal going because I didn't have the money to run it out of my pocket. I had to have good sponsors and good relationships with the motor companies. Saying that, 
uh, you know, I had to have the efficiency out of the people to get it done. Of all the drivers you had, and you had some definite Hall of Famers, if you had to win one race and you could have put any of those drivers in your race car, which driver would you have picked? Well, you know, I used to drive for myself, so I'd have got in. <laughs> <laughs> okay, let's take, let's take Junior out of the equation. Other than Junior Johnson. Bobby Allison, I had him in his prime. I had Daryl, Kale, different ones like that. I had them in their prime. And when you got a driver in his prime, he is the best driver out there. And I never, ever threaten Darrell or Kale or somebody like that to get in their car and drive it. If I had to choose one driver, it'd been Leroy Robert. Leroy had no fear. And everybody said he didn't have no sense because he didn't have no fear. <laughs> and Kale and Darrell, they was fearless, but not as fearless as he was. I think he would have went deeper and went after it more so than them or Bobby or any driver that I had. Now, you were also a kingmaker in the sport. You brought R.J. Reynolds to the table, to NASCAR, as a sponsor. How did that work out? Well, Winston just came off on TV because the government had disallowed their advertisement. I knew that R.J. Reynolds had a lot of money where they'd been feeding the TV people, and that's the first place I went to, you know, to start to get the money because uh, I knew they had it, and I knew they was in advertisements so big that there was a great possibility I'd come out of there with a sponsorship. And when I told them how much money I needed, they just laughed at me. They said, Lord have mercy, we got $570 million <laughs> in our budget, and you need $800,000. So well, we need something a lot bigger than this. It hit me right away that if I got them in with NASCAR, I would get my sponsor easier that way than I would anyway. And I said, well, you just want you need to sponsor the whole sport. They said, well, how we go about doing that? I said, if you give me your contact person, I'll get Bill France to call him, and you can work it out from that point on, and that's exactly what happened. Was there ever anybody who came back to you and said, Junior, we appreciate that. That was, that was big. And they, and they said more than that. They said they couldn't sponsor me because it's a conflict of interest. <laughs> So I, I was a little bit PO'd about that deal. <laughs> I got NASCAR in it and lost it myself. You helped broker the deal to put Dale Earnhardt and Richard Childress together when Dale lost his ride. I've always wondered, Dale had a sponsor in Wrangler, and was there ever any talk that he drive for you? Yeah, he wanted to race for me, and that's that's how... The guy that had the sponsorship at Wrangler would not do nowhere because, you know, I was a contact person there first. And he was a friend of mine. And he relied on me to do what 
I need to do to help them get where they need to be. And talking in terms of when he didn't have somebody to go to for me to get the person in the place and the atmosphere that they needed to do the best job for their company. When Earnhardt, uh, they announced that, uh, that his owner was leaving, he come straight to me and wanted me to hire him and bring Wrangler and come on over there. I talked to him down there at Talladega for about a half a day trying to help him do what I thought he ought to do because I wanted to help Earnhardt. He didn't, you know, he'd won that championship and he had a great opportunity to capitalize on it and he didn't have nobody to go to or nothing to do it and he'd just about do anything I told and I asked him I said well what about going with Bud Moore Bud Moore had lost his sponsor and let me see if I could get a break in my operation to where I can hire you and uh, I will well he went down there for two years. I know I couldn't do nothing for two years because uh, my contract was that long. And about halfway through the year of the second year, him and Bud got uh, an argument over Earnhardt was running the cars too hard and he's blowing the motors up and all that. They almost split up before him, but I talked to him staying together at the end of the year. Well... At the end of the year, Richard Childress was running Ricky Rudd, and Earnhardt couldn't go back over. And uh, I sold out to Warner Hodge and half of the team. Well, I had two teams in. Well, I need two sponsors. Well, I went and put Wrangler in Darrell's. And I knew the Coors people out in the West. I knew them pretty good because yeah. I talked to them a lot, you know, when I'd go to Riverside and stuff. I called them up, and they wanted to sponsor Neil Bond. So I had my sponsors. Well, Budweiser calls me up, says, I'll give you twice as much money as you got now to sponsor both cars. And I said, well, Lord, have mercy, i got to take care. So I went to Richard Childress, and I said, if you go back and get Earnhardt, and you all make up, i got a signed contract here you can have. You don't have to go no further. You've got a driver and a contract, money to race with. And they went back and did that, and I had Richard the contract because the, the Wrangler guy didn't like Darrell. He wanted Earnhardt, and I knew they'd fit because that tickled them to death. Well, it did tickle them to death. Well, I called the guy that worked for Bill Elliott. He's hunting for a sponsor, and I told him what, what went on with Coors. And I hadn't, did not have the contract signed with them, or we verbally cut a deal, and I called them and told them I couldn't take the deal and told them about Bill Elliott. That's how Bill Elliott got there. Now, I was under the impression that you had put Dale with Richard Childress right after he lost the ride in 81. I put him to him twice. 
he went with Richard. Then they, they had, you know, some kind of falling out, and I put him with Bud. Well, okay. Richard went and got Ricky Rudd. Well, him and Ricky Rudd didn't have the money to raise on for, for coming up here. So I went to Richard, told him and Earnhardt to get back together and get their stuff worked out, and I had him a contract. Earnhardt raced for Bud Moore in 83 and 84. Four. And you were prepared to replace Daryl Waltrip with Dale Earnhardt. That's right. How the course of NASCAR history would have been changed if that had been worked out? Well, you know, Daryl did me a great job, and I ain't seeing it. Earnhardt would have done a better job. Uh, you know, because Daryl, I, I couldn't ask for a better job than Daryl did for me. He, you know, he just did it absolutely, uh, you know, about a perfect driver for what we wanted and the atmosphere and the publicity we needed and stuff uh, through the years with Mountain Dew and so on and so forth with Budweiser and stuff. He, he was absolutely perfect for our, what, what we had. Earnhardt would have uh, been a more explosive type thing and everybody says you'd want a whole lot more races with with Earnhardt than you would Darrell but you got to figure in that Earnhardt was harder on a car you know he'd go to front if he you know if he had to to tire the car up he'd still go to front but uh, Darrell took care of the car he went when he had to and he could get the job done. I don't know. Uh, I wouldn't say he could outdrive Earnhardt, but I guarantee he could hang with him now. He was, when he went after it, he'd go get it. You and Kale won three straight championships together. Yes. And, of course, Jimmy Johnson has won three straight, and he's about to win a fourth straight. How do those two streaks compare to you? Well, a three in a row with Kale. It's not a big deal to me because I won three in a row with Kale and two with Daryl in a row. So on my side of the thing, you're looking at a different story than what you are on the driver's side. And Jimmy's going to win. I I think he'll win his uh, fourth championship. I don't think there's no question about it. Does it matter to you that his championships have been won with the chase format? No. Does it not? Racing's, you know, it's a sport that uh, people dominate. And as long as they stay together, they're going to dominate. But they're already talking about now the mechanic retiring and, you know, that kind of stuff. That hurts the race team, and it don't recover. You might think that it does, but there's people there that thinks a lot of Jimmy and a lot of people thinks more of on the mechanic side, uh, the mechanic. So it'll hurt them. Just the conversation will hurt them. Junior, what do you think of the car tomorrow? I like the safety part of it because there ain't no way that you can't say that thing's safety because of them wrecks that you're seeing at, at Talladega. It's unbelievable that somebody could walk out on one of them things. 
And they did a great job there. They just relaxed on the drivability of that car when they built it somewhere along the way. They've not got the chassis to the degree of drivability that it needs to be, and they should fix that. Now, you always were a master under the hood, and with the car tomorrow, it seems like there's a finite number of things that you can do under the hood. Would you have enjoyed working on a car tomorrow? I don't think I would because a little bit's too much for them with me. You know, if I did a little bit of something that was out of line, it'd be a lot. (laughs) And uh, it'd wind up, you know, hurting a team and stuff like that. But uh, I really interested in working on a car anymore. I've did uh, things that I, you know, was interesting. I created a lot of things that, you know, the motors and stuff and did a lot of stuff that people still running today and that side of the innovation side of things is not any interest to me anymore it's you know i'm certainly supportive of the sport looking back on your career how do you want to be remembered by race fans gave it all i could i didn't leave nothing laying on the table took it all with me to the racetrack Hello, Seam Vault Podcast listeners. This is Eric Quinn with QWare. I remember back in the early 90s when my father and I would travel down to North Wilkesboro Speedway to watch the fall Winston Cup race. Every year, we'd make a stop there in Wilkes County at Junior Johnson's Racing Shop. And we were always impressed with how open it was to be able to walk through and see the cars and see the motors and, and to see how one of the best teams in all of NASCAR did their work. I remember my dad asking the gentleman giving us a tour, why is it so open? The gentleman replied, that's the way Junior wants it. He understood the value of allowing the race fans to be a part of the experience. Junior Johnson was a leader and a pioneer in NASCAR, and we at QWare salute him and his accomplishments, and we send our condolences to his family. We at QWare are proud to be associated with the Scene Vault podcast, especially at times like this, when Rick and Steve take the time to honor someone who meant so much to the NASCAR family. Thank you for listening, and Godspeed, Junior Johnson. You're one of the great ones. Junior, rest in peace. You are going to be sorely missed.